Okay, thank you for that praise and leading us in time of song. Um, welcome once again, Sheepgate, to our service today. We're going to continue in our sermon series as we look at the latter part of chapter 6 of 1 Corinthians. So in your Bibles, if you could turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, we'll be looking at verses 12 to 20 today. Last week we looked at verses 1 to 11. We of course observed um, Paul rebuking the two brothers who were under legal battle. And he rebuked, of course, not just what was strictly happening between those two um, and in their legal dispute, but of course they brought it before a secular court. That was, that was problematic to Paul as it defeated the function of the church and its purpose in accordance with its identity and nature in Christ. And so today we look at the latter half of that chapter and uh, something a little bit different, uh, actually drastically different from what we read last week. So let's read together 1 Corinthians 6. Verses 12 to 20. I'll read. You can follow in your own Bible. This is the word of God. Um, All things are lawful for me, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. Food is for the stomach, and the stomach is for food. But God will do away with both of them. Yet the body is not for immorality, but for the Lord. And the Lord is for the body. Now, God has not only raised the Lord, but will also raise us up through his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take away the members of Christ and make the members of a prostitute? May it never be. Or do you not know that the one who joins himself to a prostitute is one body with her? For he says, the two shall become one flesh. But the one who joins himself to the Lord is one spirit with him. Flee immorality. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body, but the immoral man sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit, who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? For you have been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. Amen. This is the word of God. A powerful word from Paul today. It's going to address something very specific, and I think quite relatable to many of us. Um, So our sermon is going to be quite directed and targeted at those things. But let's first pray for our unreached people group of the day. And they come from uh, India, and they're called the Chain. It's literally spelled Chain. There are 510,000 of these people. They're mainly uh, Hindus. And so we'd like to pray for this community. Uh, There appears to be, you know, uh, somewhat of a missional movement uh, happening within uh, this people group, uh, mainly through the use of music and arts and Jesus film stuff. And so we'd like to pray for the gospel to be faithfully preached and uh, for a community of Christ to be faithfully established uh, among the chain in India. So we're praying for these people. Uh, In terms of other things that are happening in the world that we could pray for, I think it's quite obvious uh, to those those of us uh, who are following along with the news um, that, of course, with weather conditions, seasons, etc., Uh, Various parts of the world are uh, still struggling uh, with the pandemic. And of course, we need to continue to pray for resolution in that area. So let's keep praying. Let's keep praying for, um, especially here in Canada, we see some rising cases in certain sectors and sections of our our country. We're also going to be praying for, of course, uh, other parts of the world that are struggling. Last week, we prayed for the Scandinavian countries. Uh, Parts of Russia are struggling. Asia is struggling now. So let's just pray together um, for hopefully... Uh, what will be a uh, safe uh, resolution to uh, the unfortunate reality of the pandemic. Let's pray together. 
God, we thank you so much. We thank you for the day that you've given us and gifted us that we can spend together in worship. God, as we read your word and as we learn from it, Lord, may our hearts, our eyes be open to the truth to receive it by faith. God, we also pray for the chain in India. We pray for uh, a faith community uh, to be established there, a community of Christ, body of Christ to, um, to, to exist and be present there, uh, to preach the good news and the gospel of Jesus Christ to those around them. So, Father, we just pray for the missionaries who are working um, invisibly in those areas and without much, you know, accolade, um, that they are just being faithful to you in their service of the Lord. We thank you so much for them. Uh, Father, we also pray uh, for what's happening in different parts of the world, whether it be in the Scandinavian countries, in Russia, parts of Asia, and then here locally in Canada, we see, of course, uh, certain areas of our nation uh, with rising COVID cases. So we pray, Lord, uh, for health and safety and well-being. Um, but more so than that, the people will turn to Christ. The people will see hope and joy in Him, and uh, you know, rest in Him, uh, in the peace and the and um, and the truth that is found in the Gospel of Jesus. We thank you so much for the church that is here in Canada, continuing to fight the good fight. Pray all this in Your name, Amen. Okay, today's sermon is entitled "For You Have Been Bought." Uh, this comes directly from the last verse of today's text. Um, so let me just quickly wrap up a couple things um, or sum up a couple things that we've already observed. Uh, some of you may remember, some of you haven't really heard at all, right, if it's your first time here. But in the previous two sections of the text from chapter 5 and 6, we have examined, we have observed Paul's rebuke against two specific cases of poor judgment and sinful action in the church in Corinth. The first, in chapter 5, dealt with a man, if you remember, who was in an incestuous relationship uh, with his mother, and the second dealt last week in chapter six with two men who were in a legal battle in a secular Roman court. Uh, their mishandling there, as in the church, as well as the t- as a, as well as the men involved, uh, really sort of shed light. Right? Paul rebukes them, uh, and he rebukes all the parties involved, but he also rebukes the church itself for its poor handling of both of these situations. And the church's mishandling really shed light for Paul, a very poor theological and, and, and theology within the church and an ecclesiology and understanding of the church itself in regards to the nature and purpose and identity of the church, right? And so because those things were flawed, the practice was flawed. So we've seen Paul's handling of these matters. And then in today's passage, Paul shifts back, like in chapter 5, to the issue of sexual immorality as if to return to the topic of chapter 5. But it doesn't deal with incest per se. Right, although it's sort of incorporated in the category of sexual immorality. But we can observe in the text that he addresses, Paul addresses, an issue that appears to be something prevalent. It's sort of indicated to us, right? We can sort of inductively figure this out uh, in the text that there's a prevalent group of people and members of the church community in Corinth who were practicing these sexual immoralities. So here's the issue at hand today in today's text. Some people in Corinth have taken the idea of Christian liberty, this idea of freedom, like Christian freedom, freedom in Christ, if you will, and they've misused that language and that concept to engage in sexual sins, including the engagement of or in within like the practice of prostitution, right? So Paul corrects their theology today and on this matter, and then firmly he rebukes the actions that were being undertaken. Um... So that's sort of like what we're reading today as a sum up. 
and we're, we're going to break it down. So let's look at three points. It's three points because Paul has three points. The first point in verses 12 to 14 is this. The Lord is for the body. Right? We see that right in the text. Uh, the second point, verses 15 to 17, I just titled it, No Prostitution Whatsoever. Right? It's just something that Paul clearly prohibits. And then verses 18 to 20, Flee Immorality. So that's sort of the practical application that Paul gives at the end. Right? So three points to today's sermon. He gives a theological basis. The Lord is for the body. You know, disregard or prohibits pro- prostitution, right? And engagement of that. And then flee immorality. He addresses sexual immorality altogether, right? So <clears throat> let's look at this text. And let's look at these verses. Verses 12 to 14. The Lord is for the body. This is where we find the theological basis for today's argument and today's lesson. The beginning of Paul's sudden argumentation against sexual immorality and sexual sins for that matter in the church which is assumed at this point that some are engaging in begins with a powerful theological teaching and basis the premise of his argument Paul's argument which can be difficult to follow if you're not used to the language of the Greek right like the Greek language is written in a very particular way And it doesn't flow the same way that the English does, right? So when you read your English Bibles, you you might have a tendency to misread or not fully grasp uh, what Paul is saying. So when you read it as, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are profitable, all things are lawful for me, but I will not be masturbating, it flows a little better in the Greek. Trust me on that. Or just study the Greek. (laughs) It's a little hard, but anyways. Um, So just be take note of that, right? Um, So what we see here, right, is... Uh, Paul trying to teach, like in the, in the premise and in his argument, which can be difficult to follow, is pretty much this. He is correcting the misunderstanding of Christian freedom, and then he corrects the misunderstanding of the nature of the body for the Christian and how the Christian is to be using their body in light of that understanding. So these are the things that he is attempting to do here. The Christian is to remember a few things. That the body is for the Lord, as the Lord is for the body. And the evidence of this is proved in the resurrection of Christ. And so in the resurrection, we see the theological uh, premise for understanding the nature of our bodies and then thus how we are to use our bodies for the glory of God. Right? So it's grounded in the resurrection, right? And then it's put into application in light of that truth in terms of bringing glory to God, right? And ultimately, of course, we know that the resurrection of Christ leads to and precursors the resurrection of all believers, right? So that's what we mean when we talk about the union with Christ and all of these things. So Paul makes a clear distinction in these verses. I just want to make a couple points on these verses and then we'll move on to the second point. But Paul makes a clear distinction in these verses, verses 12 to 14, between the two extreme thoughts that a Christian could hold in terms of the concept of Christian freedom or liberty, right? It can be misused or misunderstood in two very different ways. And I'll address those two things. The first is this, that the Christian can become legalistic, right? You can become legalistic when it comes to these things. One could say this, that our freedom in Christ is strictly something earned. Freedom is earned through strict discipline. And of course, we talk you know, um, following our service today, following lunch, we're going to continue our conversation 
on those things, but becoming legalistic, right? This is something we talked about last week in our Bible study. Becoming legalistic could be very, very problematic, right? And is problematic to many, right? So one could say this. One could say that our freedom in Christ is earned through strict discipline. The Pharisaic mindset or the ascetic Christians of the first few centuries of, of, the, of the faith and, and the monks of the Roman Catholic tradition um, and other various groups uh, throughout Christian history are examples of people who take the idea of Christian freedom to an extreme level of self-righteousness. One famous ascetic, for example, he's one of my favorite stories to read about in, in, in the history books, is this man named Simeon the Stylite. Stylite literally means just like pole or pillar, right? The reason he was this or named this way, uh, some people call him Simeon the Elder. You can just Google this up. He lived on top of basically what was a stone pole or what we call like a pillar for 37 years. 37 years he lived on top of a pole just to get away from people who were bothering him about like advice, right? He just was so sick of this stuff and he wanted to live on top of a pole away from people to just be closer to God physically as well as like spiritually, right? So the ascetics, if you know anything about um, what the ascetics were, these were people who deprived themselves uh, even to the point of like causing harm to one's body for the purposes of growing in sanctification, right? That was sort of their justification for that kind of practice. And the ascetics, you know, this is sort of like a less extreme version. There are like harsher ascetics who, um, you know, in, in history, you could see them like literally like causing physical pain to their own bodies, right? Just like the Baal worshippers would do um, in, for the sake of like being holier, right? And of course, you know, as Christians, we don't really believe this, but um, without making judgment on his intent and his heart and all that stuff, this, this Simeon the Stylite always, this, his story like fascinates me. How did he live on top of a pole for 37 years? If you actually look up his story, these kids every day from the village would bring water and food, put it on a stick and lift it up and he would eat it up there and then they would come and collect his garbage and then I don't even know how he went to the washroom. I don't know how all this stuff happened. Like he definitely did not wash. So I don't, I mean, maybe it was great that he was on top of a pole for 37 years, right? At that point, you don't really want him to come down, right? But anyways, uh, this is the type of extreme action that people would undergo, right? And people were inspired to do the same thing by Simeon. And so other people would start living on poles and be like, oh, I'm going to live longer than 37 years on top of this pillar. And you can read all these stories. There's really crazy actions, right? To bunker themselves away from people, right? There are people like this who bunker themselves, just put themselves away, privatize their lives, away from people and the world, the secular world, so as to what? Get closer to God. Then those who chose to live within the world, they look at people like Christians who live in the world and say, oh, you're getting influenced by the world. You got to live away from the world. The modern Mennonite or the Amish communities hope to achieve, I think, a similar sort of thing. There is a danger in, of course, an underlying pride as well as a danger in legalism in such activities. So as to say that these higher acts of self-deprivation will lead to higher glory, right? So there is this extreme of thinking of Christian freedom in this way, right? I know it's not the common way to think of Christian freedom, but it is a danger to think of it this way, right? The other extreme, I think, is the more common and probably the more familiar, is to understand Christian liberty as a means to sin, a license to sin, right? Paul famously addresses this in Romans 6, and we will look at that later. But to the question of, if Christ died for me and my body is crucified with him, then can't I just live any way I want? If I'm elect and predestined, does it matter? Can't I just sin and then just repent? 
does it really matter how I live my life in this world? Right? I can just live any way I want and it's still go to heaven. Right? This, um, the answer to this question, I think, is an emphatic no to me. You can't. And it's on these grounds. I question, is that genuine faith? We have already discussed that genuine believers do not see a freedom to sin in Christ. They do not see a freedom to sin in Christ. Genuine believers see a freedom from sin in Christ. So the freedom we're talking about is not the human desire of total freedom, right? The freedom to do whatever I want. The Christian freedom that we preach and we learn about and we are gifted through God's grace is a freedom from the things we want because you don't see the things you want as things that are killing you. We now live in gratitude as genuine believers, not in ignorance. But the Corinthians saw in their new faith, not all of them, but some of them, a means to justify living in self-pleasure. And you might think, that's so contradictory. How could that be? Yes, all things are now lawful, right? If you think of like in scripture, right? We see, of course, like Peter, who didn't want to eat the unclean foods, in the book of Acts, and then he has this vision and and, and, and the Lord brings him this table of food, of this unclean food, and he says, eat, right? It, what, that which was once unclean is now, has now been made clean, so eat. It is now lawful to do this, right? Circumcision is no longer necessary, you know, you know Sabbath laws, like other laws like these, like sort of religious and legal laws, moral, uh, not non-moral laws, were all of a sudden made lawful, right? And so, yes, in Paul's perspective, all things are now lawful only in the sense that the legal laws of the Old Testament are now fulfilled in the person of Christ and his work and accomplished work on the cross. So we no longer live under the law. Certainly, we see that in Galatians. But the moral laws that the laws upheld, right? The godly laws, the, ho- the holiness laws, the laws that were, were dictating what holiness is and looks like, right? That taught us those things. Those are still upheld and certainly true. Because we're to, we are to embody holiness and to sanctify towards it. We are free, but within the bounds of grace. Because grace protects us from that which kills us. And that is, of course, namely sin. But it is sin that we desire the most. And it is sin that which we seek the most. If Christ died for your sins, why would that enable a license to sin then? Right? That's what Paul's asking the Corinthians. The Corinthians had it all wrong. So Paul is correcting their theology here. He reminds them that indeed the body is crucified with Christ, but we are also resurrected with him too. Do not forget this fact. The resurrection is a reality that grounds our theological basis of Christian, Christian living now and forever. So that which is not profitable is not to be done. That which is damaging is not to be done, is what Paul is teaching. Um, I think a really powerful uh, historical example of the condition of the Christian heart uh, many times is, can be observed in the book of Exodus. And when you see Exodus and the Israelites who are freed from the slavery, right? For hundreds of years, they were under slavery, under Egypt. They were just miserable slaves. And they're crying out to God, and they thought, God is not hearing me. Finally, they send Moses. Moses brings the ten plagues, and they're freed. They're free men. 
They're free women. They're free people. They're no longer under Egypt. But what do you see and hear as soon as they get to the Red Sea and they see Pharaoh's chariots? Did you bring us out here to die? It was better to be in Egypt under slavery. At least we had food on our table. I would have rather been that than where I am now. And you thought that would happen once. God splits that sea miraculously. They cross safely. They see Pharaoh's chariots consumed. They are freed for good from, from Egypt. They wander into the desert and all they keep doing is keep looking back at their lives in Egypt. And they keep saying to themselves, wasn't it better to be a slave? Why? Why do you think they keep doing that? Because they've lost sight of where they're going. They've lost sight of the promised land that God is leading them to. So when you stop setting your sights on eternity and the promises of God that He is fulfilling in your life, it may be a reality of your life that you are wandering in a desert, metaphorically. But you cannot tell me that where you were is better than where you're headed. That is the Christian life. Encompassed for us in the example of the Exodus. This is so critical for us to understand. But our condition and what we're prone to do is to keep looking back and thinking, I was better a slave than a follower of Jesus. Does that make sense to you? It doesn't for me, in terms of the Israelites' attitude, right? You read that in the Bible in the Exodus, and you're probably thinking, these Israelites are so stupid. Like they're going to the promised land. What's wrong with these fools, right? Well, those Israelites who are in heaven now are probably looking at us and going, you're the fool. <laughs> now you're the fool, right? We're here. Point number two. Paul deals with prostitution in these verses, 15 to 17. Now, within the city of Corinth, a common practice that could be found among the citizens of this city was the hiring and the engagement of prostitutes. As we mentioned in the, in the introductory, or the introduction to 1 Corinthians weeks ago now, the city of Corinth was, city of Corinth was a diverse pagan port city. It was pagan, it was diverse, multicultural, and it was a port city. So there's a lot of trade going on and so you had a growing metropolis with people coming in and out especially merchants and traders international merchants and traders in the area men who had traveled or were traveling back then probably now as well sought sexual comfort in places they would lay over and corinth was no different with a growing city comes a growing hunger for sin and in today's case sexual sin practice the practice of prostitution and the purchasing of these services was so common in Corinth that it had no moral bearing on the hearts and minds of the Corinthians themselves. This included 
the Corinthian church members, as many of them engaged in this practice and twisted Christian liberty to justify their actions. Their main argument was as follows. If my body will die, and it has died, like I'm dead to my body, and it is my soul that will be saved, then the body can be used for anything. And if Christ has died for me so as to destroy the flesh, then the body doesn't really matter, and what I do with it doesn't matter, and so I can just do what I want with it. You see how easy it is to take Christian teachings and manipulate them for personal pleasure or gain? People have been doing it from the very beginnings of the church. And we do this today. The language of the modern uh, Christian who attempts to find loopholes in the faith to do what they want is always, is this permissible? Is this allowed? Is it okay to do this? Is this biblical? Does the Bible explicitly say this about this, 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 right? I've taught you this before, but instead of seeking to do that which is best, we're always seeking to do that which, that which is minimally accepted, right? We tread the line. We, wanna, we don't want to sin, but we, want, we don't want to fully do the holy thing either. And so we just tread that line. And that is a very, very poor attitude, right? Like think about anything in life. If you approached it with that kind of attitude, what do you achieve? Basically nothing, right? Like if I was, as a pastor, told you honestly and genuinely, I was like, yeah, my intent here is just to, you know, do as minimal work as possible. You know, like, like how much do I need to care for you for me to pass as your pastor, right? Like how often should I talk to you to maintain friendship? Like that's kind of a ridiculous question and we bring that to God all the time, Right? This is a terrible, terrible attitude to have. And Paul finds and discovers this uh, to be a reality in the Corinthian church. Paul first reminds us that we are all one body and members of that body of Christ, right? And of course, in 1 Corinthians 11, 12, 13, we'll get there. We'll talk about the body of Christ. When one prostitutes or, you know, purchases, so to speak, the services of a prostitute, it is damaging to the whole whole body suffers selling our bodies to such sin is selling yourself to be a member of a different body in hosea god commands hosea to wed a prostitute named gomer she inevitably cheats on hosea and sleeps with other men god uses this disgraceful union to exemplify israel's relationship to him god's people at that time israel he says that they are like that of gomer a prostitute who in marriage gives themselves to others and acts in such distaste. Of course, in the context of that passage, Israel was idolizing and serving and worshiping other idols, not the one true God. Paul then reminds us of Genesis 2.24, that husband and wife become one flesh. Metaphorically speaking, spiritually speaking, but in physical sexual relations as well. The way that sex is meant to be practiced and designed to be practiced is within the marital union between one man and one woman in the Christian faith. Um, David Guzik, our commentator on, on the Bible, he writes, a person pursuing a casual sexual encounter may not want to become one flesh with their partner, but in some spiritual sense, they do. Part of their self is given to that person and it means there is less given to the Lord into the partner God intends for them. In the biblical understanding of sex, there is no such thing 
as casual sex. In fact, all the instances of extramarital casual sex encounters in the Bible lead to punishment. Since we belong to Jesus, Gordon Fee writes, body, soul, and spirit, we have no right to give any part of ourselves away to an unauthorized person. By being joined to her or him, a prostitute, in porneia, that's Greek for sexual immorality, the believer constitutes someone else outside of Christ as the unlawful Lord over one's body. And then finally, Wiersbe also writes this, sex outside of marriage is like a man robbing a bank. He's using a man as an example. It could be a woman too. He gets something, but it is not his. And he will one day pay for it. Sex within marriage can be like a person putting money into a bank. There is safety, security, and he will collect dividends. Just an example. Don't take that like too literally, right? But it's the attitude that he's really addressing there, right? I ponder, I ponder, because I think we all struggle with this, why we seek sex so much, right? Why it is such an alluring pleasure trap. What is the satisfaction we get in such practice? You could argue this with me, but I've just listed a couple things that I've rested on, right? Well, we seek sex because of this. We seek pleasure, satisfaction, comfort, worth, a sense of being loved, appreciation, companionship, relationship, value, and other synonyms of the sort. All of which, brothers and sisters, all of which are far better achieved and received by being in an intimate, loving relationship with our God. And you're sitting there going, no way. There's no way that's possible. Then you have not tasted. You have not seen. You just haven't. And if you have not yet tasted these things in the Lord and in your relationship with Him, then guess what? Yes, you will continue to seek after sex. And you will continue to seek after the things that you think sex will bring into your life. So my hope and prayer for you is that you will taste and that you will see that these things are far better experienced in your personal relationship with God. Final point, flee immorality, verses 18 to 20. The final verses deal with the overall practice and subject of sexual immorality. Paul is emphatic in this last section. Just in case the message to the Corinthians hasn't been clear enough thus far, the fear on Paul's end might have been, this is speculation, don't take it as truth, might have been on Paul's end, that they would, the Corinthians, would cease from indulging in the practice of prostitution, only then to find other sexual loopholes and activities that they could deal, that they could engage with, uh, that Paul didn't mention explicitly so as to find that loophole, right? But Paul shuts the door on all of that here. He categorizes all sexual morality and just, and just basically clumps them all together and says, none of this is good. Outside of marriage, none of this is good. As one package of sin, he deals with sexual immorality. And the grounds of Paul's argument is grounded in the theological teaching of divine purchase, if you will call it that. That the Christian 
has been bought at a price by the blood of Christ on the cross. We are now, as he has already said, his. We are God's. We are his. Our bodies are no longer our own. Paul writes in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. In a life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself up for me. If that is the indicative of the text, then the imperative is the clear statement of verse 18. The first two words in your Bible. Flee immorality. Paul understands the hold and grip that sexual passion has in our lives. So instead of saying, hold your ground, fight the fight, he says, flee, right? Get out of there. I love that scene in The Lord of the Rings where Gandalf yells, run you fools, right? You know that scene? Paul is saying the same thing here. You fools, run, get out. This Balrog is not worth your effort. He will kick your butt. You will die. Get out. Right? I think the biblical figure that demonstrated this the best was Joseph, who was put in charge of Potiphar's home and was tempted by Potiphar's wife. And so what did he do? He fled. The poor example in the Bible would be, of course, someone like King David, who at the sight of Bathsheba brought her to himself to sleep with her, knowing she was married, and then orchestrated the death of her husband, who was loyal to him. David did to an extreme level what many people try to do today in their private lives. Watch some porn, delete the history, go through Instagram models, delete the history, sleep with Bathsheba, delete the history. Right? But guess what? Before the Lord one day, that deleted history, it's going to be put right in your face. So flee. You have to flee. Run. But remember this. What we are fleeing from. It is not sex practiced within the godly model of marriage. Paul is not saying, flee from sex. That's not what he's saying. Right? Flee immorality. What he's telling you to do is flee from something specific. Sexual immorality. Any sexual practice outside of those that the Bible condones, which are called the biblical parameters. And the word here used is the Greek word porneia, which is an entire category of sexual sins that deviates from God's intent and design for sex. It is not sex itself that is a bad practice. It is the abuse of it, practice and means that deviates from God's intended design and purpose. So what Paul is urging us to flee from is a hefty list of items. Certainly, yes. And they are sins concerned with a gross misuse of the body we live in. Which leads Paul in the final verse to remind the Christian that the body, or the final two verses I should say, that the body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. He taught us previously, if you remember from, I believe it was chapter 3, that the church is the temple of God. right? And now, in a sense, he writes that our individual bodies are temples as well. So we are to take care of that which houses the Holy Spirit as He, the Holy Spirit, empowers us to become anew, right? To sanctify and to be made like Christ. Spurgeon wrote this once, and I thought it was quite clever. 
This is what he wrote. Your body was a willing horse when it was in the service of the devil. Let it not be a sluggish hack now that it draws the chariot of Christ. Nice warning there, right? Spurgeon's so, he's so eloquent. If you ever seen a picture of Spurgeon, he does not look like the way he writes. <laughs> it's kind of like Ed Sheeran. You hear his voice, you're like, he must, he must look like an angel. No offense, Ed Sheeran, you look great. We've been bought by the blood of Christ who died on our behalf so that we can be made new in him. How will you, brother and sister, respond to this gospel reality, reality in your own life? I know what you feel you want to do and what you would rather do and what you would tend to do. But I'm asking you, how will you respond to this truth? I'm not asking you how you feel about it or what you think about it or the issues that come to your mind or obstacles or stuff. I'm asking you, how will you respond in gratitude to Christ who died on the cross for your sins? I end off with this as I promised. Because so I think it's the most appropriate conclusion to a sermon on this topic. Let me read Romans 6 for you. Just listen to the word of God and listen to what Paul has to say. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? May it never be. How shall we who die to sin still live in it? Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with, so that we would no longer be slaves to sin, for he who has died is freed from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, this is the important part, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lusts and do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. I love this part. For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under the law, but under grace. That's Paul. It gives me chills to read that. Let's reflect and pray on what Paul has taught us today.